I don't know how you could map it geographically, uh, but I certainly grew up thinking it was Sherbert. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, let's talk some more about food-related terms. We've been doing that the last couple of weeks, and uh, I've been having fun with it. Have you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite subjects. Yeah. It's a a good – you can cross-pollinate a little bit because of your background with French, and so many of these terms are French, aren't they? Yeah, and plus, I love to cook. Oh, me too. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of my great uh, release points in the day is, you know, finishing the finishing the work of the day, the other stuff of the day, and then going home and working in the kitchen. You know, I was at a party recently where there were uh, it was the women who mostly knew each other. But the, this one and husbands and partners were invited along and there were three women sitting in the corner of the garden chatting away rather actually conversing intensely about their favorite planes for woodworking and ones that they'd acquired and uh, how they like to use them and recommending different types to each other. And I noticed that conversation was going on while three of us men were sitting on the other side uh, talking about our favorite recipes. Yeah, right. Times are changing. Yeah, things have gotten flipped on their heads here, but... uh... Both of those in- endeavors are really fascinating and worth talking about, aren't they? I mean, it's like I I could see myself getting into woodworking too. I'm not good at it though. <laughs> I'm terrible at it, but I appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Well, before we start the, the main meal, we should pay attention to the hors d'oeuvres. Right, and we got a couple of them. We can talk about. Yeah. Well, the H O R S D apostrophe O E U V R E S. There are so many spelling problems in that phrase for American English speakers that it's hard to know where to begin because it's just got so much that can go wrong. Um, now, if you did know a little French, you might interpret this phrase to mean out of work. R means beyond or without. And d'oeuvre is a phrase meaning of the work, but it's actually, in this case, it's the the thing that has been produced by work, that is the dish, the food item that's being served. And it, in fact, it means little snack foods, and the reason it's served before or outside of the main dishes. Mm-hmm. So your oeuvre if it was used that way, which it isn't, would be the main dish. But the hors d'oeuvre are the things that are outside the main dish. Uh, English speakers have trouble mastering the sounds in this phrase. Um, There are lots of problems. Okay, first of all, you don't pronounce the H. You don't pronounce the S. The O-E-U sound is uh, which is a vowel we don't even have in English. And it then it's followed by a French R, which is different from an American R. It's R rather than R. And uh, then it ends in another silent S. So it's just one obstacle after another. It's just incredibly difficult. So Americans have come pretty close by standardizing on hors d'oeuvres. And, and that's what most people say. And I think that is, in fact, the standard English pronunciation. 
Um, you're being a little pretentious. You could come and say, oh, I'll bring the hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> well, you, you may not get invited back. But you get a lot of mangled spellings when people try to write it. I've seen H-O-R-S apostrophe, with an apostrophe in the wrong place, space, D-O-U-R-V-E-S, which is really mangled in at least three different ways. Many modern food writers decided we don't need to try to wrap our tongues around this peculiar foreign phrase, and they now prefer starters, which I think is fine. They can also commonly be called appetizers. Mm -hmm. This is another case where somebody trying to be sophisticated mm, sounds illiterate instead or looks illiterate. So, um, yeah. It seems to be mainly restaurant reviewers and menu writers that use starters. I don't think it's caught on with the general public yet, but I'm, I'm a fan. But appetizers works just fine. And that's been around for a long time sure. as a replacement phrase, much easier for us uh, English speakers to pronounce and, and spell out. But if you ever do have occasion to that you need to spell hors d'oeuvres, and, and I have from time to time, I need to look to a book like Common Errors in English Usage to ha show me how that thing gets spelled because there is, there is no mnemonic device, is there, for getting through all of those vowels? <laughs> No, just remember not to say it. <laughs> just remember not to say it. And if you ever have to spell it out, look it up somewhere. Right. And if it happens to be in the Common Errors in English Usage book, you'll find it across the page from a dish that's often served as an appetizer. Hummus. Hummus. Hummus is really, really popular these days. And it's uh, we eat a lot of hummus. And it's made in a lot of different ways, most often with chickpeas. But I see hummus being made from other things as well. It's Middle Eastern, and um, it's one of those things that the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Turks and the Egyptians all have in common. They have different recipes, and they all claim it as a national dish, but it's uh, definitely Middle Eastern and now extremely common in America as well. And the most common spelling is H-U-M-M-U-S in English. Mm -hmm. However, every once in a while, you see H-U-M-U-S with just one M. Mm -hmm. And that's humus, which is the rotted plant matter that you spread on your garden to enrich the soil. Now, there's a little slight curve in this. The Turks, uh, who were big on uh, simplifying their spelling when they converted to the Western alphabet back in the 1920s, um, decided to spell hummus, H-U-M-U-S. But most of us don't encounter Turkish hummus unless we're in a Turkish restaurant or visiting Turkey, which um, is a wonderful place to visit until recently, anyway. Um, so I, I would say uh, you really don't want to use that Turkish spelling in this country because your guests might suspect you're serving them dirt. Mm -hmm. And this inspired one of my favorite uh, cartoons that I made, and I hate to claim that you know I have my uh, my favorites. They, I love them all, <laughs> but uh, in the if you look in the book, uh, you'll see there's a the cartoon that accompanies the humus hummus entry is a woman uh, standing there watering her garden, and the caption reads, "The silver bells and cockle shells helped somewhat." But Mary's garden really got going when she switched from hummus to humus. Right. Yeah. 
All right. So, and and we should mention that it's not only a favorite of yours; you invented it. So <laughs> Tom gets credit for all the cartoons in the book. Okay. They're great. All right. Well, anyway, that that was one of my favorites because uh, Mary with with her silver bells and cockle shells and and of course right. humus that's going to really kick in. Yeah. All right. Uh, Moving down and switching gears a little bit, of course, hummus is really trendy and popular and traditionally done with chickpeas, but people are doing it with bean, white beans and all kinds of things now. Actually, I like white beans better. There's a Greek version of white beans and olive oil and uh, dill that is my favorite. Yeah. Well, I make it with chickpeas on a somewhat regular basis. I just keep a a pot of chickpeas cooked up and and I keep some tahini around and I throw it together with lots and lots of lemon and garlic. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, yeah, the lemon's important. And uh uh but I I do like these variations. I I like those like you're describing the the white beans and so on. And those are all really popular re- variations on this really trendy. A lot of uh uh, sun-dried tomatoes get thrown into hummus these days <laughs> and all kinds of things. But you know what's decidedly untrendy? Marshmallows. Well, except as um, s'mores. Yeah. Well, that's true. There are restaurants now serving high-end s'mores with imported chocolate. Sure. Handmade graham crackers. <laughs> You yeah. can pay $10 for a s'more. But what are they doing about the marshmallow part? You, you've got to have – is there a high-end marshmallow? I, what are they doing with that? Yeah. Yes, okay. Yes, I've seen them. I've seen handcrafted marshmallows that were had uh, sprinkled toasted coconut on the outside. Oh, my gosh. Squares and, you know, 50 cents a piece. <laughs> all right. Well, talk about turning things on their head. Okay. All right. I'm convinced. The problem is that the word is actually marshmallow originally, but we came to pronounce it mellow. So the temptation to put the E in there instead of the A is very strong and the mal part. Yeah. So I, I tried to convey this by saying your s'mores may taste mellow, but that gooey confection you use in them is not marshmallow, but marshmallow. It was originally made from the root of a mallow plant, which grew in marshes. Mm-hmm. And there is a whole family of mallows. Um, so that's another connection, going back to our hummus-humus confusion between garden plants and gooey foods you might eat. Yeah. Uh, well, that's probably about the most you can say about marshmallow, is that uh, it can get easily misspelled with the E-L-L instead of the A-L-L. Right. And, of course, s'mores also feature melted chocolate. Correct. Yes, melted chocolate. Yeah. And there are two words in English that we can use for uh, melted chocolate. There's molten and melted. Now, hang on just a second, though. I know we're going to talk about melted chocolate or melted and molten. Right. But um, can I ask you quickly, do s'mores use melted chocolate? The idea is that you don't pour melted chocolate on. What you do is you put the hot toasted marshmallow on the solid chocolate and then on the cracker and, and make a sandwich. And the hot marshmallow melts the chocolate somewhat. Okay, I get it. So that's where the melted chocolate comes in. It's yeah. Slightly melted. Right. But it's got to have that crispness to it, too. Yeah. Okay, so melted and molten. Right. So molten is now usually used to describe hard materials like lava, glass, and lead when they're liquefied by very high heat. 
Most other substances are melted, though some people like to refer to molten cheese. And a popular dessert is called molten chocolate cake, perhaps to emphasize its gooey lava-like character. Yes. And I think when we encounter molten, we tend to think of something really thick and lava-like. Yes, right. Uh, well, is that enough about melted and molten? Unless you've got something else. No, I don't have anything more to say about that one. But uh, I do like the next one because uh, it's a usage thing and there is a grammar point or a spelling point to be made about it. Um, and that's using the word N instead of the word and right. to describe menu items such as big and juicy burgers. Right. It may look funny to some people, but there is a right way and a wrong way to do this one. Yeah, the apostrophe that gets involved with the N has, it stands for the missing letters in the word and. So you need two apostrophes, one at the beginning for the A and the other after the N for the D, big and juicy burgers. But you rarely see it that way. Uh, mostly on the signs, um, people spell it like big N apostrophe juicy. I think the final apostrophe gets the, uh, used instead of the previous one um, because we're used to ing words like uh, walking where the apostrophe stands for a g and uh, so we associate apostrophes often with letters emitted at the end of a word rather than at the beginning and in fact it is uh, hard to type a correct curved apostrophe at the beginning of a word on a computer if you've got the uh, autocorrect turned on and I actually have a bit on that in the book about tricks to, to get those when you want them mm -hmm. so I don't know again this is something where it's almost never spelled the way I would prefer so can I call it an error well it just bugs me well if you look at it and if you're trying to apply any kind of uniformity to the thing those apostrophes stand for the dropped letters regardless of where they are in the word um when you use the word uh doesn't uh you drop the o out of the uh, not at the end and the apostrophe stands for the dropped letter so it only stands to reason that if you're dropping an a and you're also dropping a d you ought to stick an apostrophe into both of those places. Yeah, but it's not helped by the fact that McDonald's actually created a registered trademark, big N apostrophe tasty. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> and you can't fight that, can you? It's then at that point, uh, they've turned a corner and, and established that that's just how they want to do it. And I'm certain that lots and lots of people high up in McDonald's have said, no, no, that's wrong. And, and everybody said, it's wrong. But people will get it. <laughs> We're not worried about people getting what it is. So the next one is something that could be small and tasty, um, but can turn very distasteful if you do it wrong. Mm. Uh, that's poo-poo. And there are three different, totally unconnected words and phrases uh, that are pronounced poo-poo. A toddler with a soggy diaper proudly announces, I go poo-poo. And we all know what that is. And that's a P-O-O hyphen P-O-O. Right. And uh, these days, mostly it gets abbreviated to just one, like picking up dog poo, and it's short for poop, of course. Um, so a skeptic is inclined to poo-poo outlandish ideas, P-O-O-H-P-O-O-H. -O -O That's hyphenated. Don't mix up matter for skepticism with material for the septic system. Yes. 
Right, there you go. And then a little more rare, a selection of snacks served on a wooden platter in a Chinese restaurant. It's called a poo-poo platter. A custom and word that made its way to the U.S. mainland from Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So if there's a Hawaiian background to uh, a particular restaurant, you're likely to find a poo-poo platter. And, of course, that will give kids the giggles. Sure. But they're all pronounced the same. But uh, you've got to be careful about the spelling because a P-O-O-P-O-O platter would not be appetizing at all. Right. So the P-U-P-U platter sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Now, we talked about Caesar salads when we started all of this, mm-hmm. and which turned out to be named after somebody named Caesar, his first name. And there's another menu item, frequently misspelled, that has another chef first name in it, and that's the Reuben sandwich. And before I went on a gluten-free diet, I used to love <laughs> Reuben sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an American concoction made of corned beef, sauerkraut, fresh uh, Swiss cheese, and Russian dressing on rye bread. You find variations, but that's the original. That's the authentic uh, one. And by the way, rye bread often has wheat in it. That's the problem for me. Um, so it, the origin of the sandwich is obscure. It's credited to several restaurateurs, but all of them spelled their name R-E-U-B-E-N with the E before the U. And a lot of menus spell it R-U-E-B-E-N. And you should feel really sorry and rue the day you ever misspelled it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, and it's not just the sandwich. Of course, it's the proper, it's the name. The name yes. Ruben is spelled R-E-U. Yes. It's not R-U-E. Uh, so um, you are able to get some wheat-free rye bread, are you not? And from, not in a restaurant. You might be able to, to shop around, and I don't usually want a whole loaf of I make my own bread. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that would be something to miss if you're going gluten-free. Yeah, and by the way, I want it known that I am one of the 1%. I am genuinely unable to eat gluten. I'm not one of those trendy people that's just doing it because they think it sounds cool. I encourage everybody else that can eat as much wheat as you can. <laughs> really miss French puff pastry and cream puffs and phyllo dough, and they don't make gluten-free versions of those. All right. I won't torture you anymore by making you talk about that. <laughs> um, but uh, is it 1% really? I would think it might be a little higher than that. No, the worldwide average of people with celiac is... One percent, and there's another one percent that's a little more controversial of uh, wheat intolerance. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. That's different from actual celiac disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but moving right along, you get to some more redundancies. Last episode, we were talking about soup du jour of the day. Yeah, right. Here's another one. Salsa sauce. Salsa is a dance, of course, but uh, it's as a food. I think most people know that salsa is a sauce. Mm-hmm. And then you don't really need to add sauce in the end for salsa. It's another one of these. Of course, it's Spanish rather than French. If you're going to use the Spanish word, you're going to assume that people know what it means. Um, one of the things you often hear said is that people spend more on salsa than on ketchup. Yeah. Which I'm interested if that's really true. It may be simply that salsa is more expensive than ketchup. And the dollars spent may not be the same thing as the ounces consumed. Mm -hmm. Well, who knows? At some point, the salsa phenomenon really took off. Certainly when I was a young kid, the shelf space devoted to salsa was nothing compared to what it is now. Then there's a whole sriracha stuff, too. Oh, yes. That has certainly blown up. 
But this uh, salsa business, I think that's pretty well disappeared, don't you? Salsa sauces. Yeah. And and the, at proper salsa is chopped tomatoes, onions, chilies, and cilantro. Okay, yeah, which is the, the about the best thing you can do with your garden vegetables in the summer. <laughs> Bring them in, slice them up on your cutting board, and just leave them there. They won't last long. I should note that there are some people, a minority, who have a genetic variation that actually makes cilantro taste like soap to them. That's right, yeah. My wife is one of those. <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't have that, but apparently when you do, it, it's completely disgusting, isn't it? Nobody wants that. Yeah. Uh, here's one that is, um, I think, pretty persistent, because we're talking about switching gears again, talking about more desserts, but this is um, sherbet and sherbet. Right. And putting that extra R in is something that's kind of a regional thing, isn't it? In a lot of words, like the wash wash thing, I think we talked about that at some point. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how how you could map it geographically, uh, but I certainly grew up thinking it was sherbet, and I first encountered it in a, a chain that opened in Northern California called Herbert's Sherbet. Mm, mm-hmm. It was spelled Herbert's Sherbet without the second R, but almost everybody pronounced it as Herbert's Sherbet's to rhyme with Herbert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it took me a long time to, to straighten this one out. Um, the original term is what the French call sorbet, S-O-R-B-E-T. It's Turkish and Persian, and I don't know how it's pronounced in those languages. The French do sorbet, and um, you often find in ice cream shops, well, they'll use the term sorbet on the menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it does turn into sherbet a lot of times. Well, in fact, I feel like I see sorbet more commonly than I see sherbet these days. I think it depends on how sophisticated ice cream outlet you're in. It might be. If you see sorbet, though, you're not really going to do the sorbet. No. It's the sure and the bert. Yeah, the sure yeah. and the burr. I think that's what brings in that R. Right. But it's certainly not spelled with that R. And if you are pronouncing it with that R, you should be aware that that's not the correct spelling anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, we talked about cooking and how much we love cooking. And uh, it, it's nice being on both sides of the equation. But... Uh, if you are the chef, it's really nice to have a sous chef, isn't it? Yeah, right. But it's also nice to be a sous chef to somebody else who's got some great idea in mind. Right. Sous means under or assistant in this case. And uh, in the local newspaper where I used to live, uh, there was a woman who wrote a um, food column, and she referred one time to this uh, particular dish that she was promoting as having been invented by the local Souse chef. Souse. S-O-U-S-E. Okay. Yeah. And so I said, oh, no, the Souse chef is the fellow who adds a dash of brandy to your dessert. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, well, yeah. And if he's been nipping at it, he might be the Soused chef. Yeah, right. No, it's S-O-U-S, no E. Sous chef, uh, French phrase meaning assistant chef. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty prevalently used, although assistant chef would be perfectly descriptive and perfectly fine. But there's so many cooking shows on TV now and you know, famous chefs and so on, so it turns up a, a fair number. It's a good term to know what a sous chef is. Uh, it's not a, an English cognate or anything, the word sous. It, you just have to know it's an assistant. Yeah, I think maybe the sous chef will be chopping food up on the top of the table and the south chef would be lying unconscious underneath it. Okay, um, we talked about spicy last time. 
and it has various meanings. And uh, I didn't mention in that that uh, when you're dealing with Indian food, spicy, the hotness can often come from several different sources. So it's sometimes hard to communicate what it is you want left out because the same recipe might have dried hot chilies, fresh green chopped chilies, and ginger, fresh ginger, mm-hmm. and black pepper. And uh, if you just say leave out the pepper, it just depends on whether that person thinks of peppers and chilies as being the same thing. And because we talk about chili peppers. Um, and Indian menus, you'll frequently see the spelling C-H-I-L-L-I. Yes, right. Yeah, that's... A... And that's not a mistake. <laughs> um, that's the British spelling for chili, which they got from India. And so the I don't know which way it, the uh, spelling originated, whether it was Indian chefs spelling it in English for Britishers or British chefs trying to describe what the Indians were serving them. But at any rate, uh, like woolen, which also is a double L in British, it's got a double L in British usage and UK usage, and it is also proper on an Indian menu. But outside of that, it's better to stick with C-H-I-L-I, and certainly for the name of the country, it's Mm C-H-I-L-E. Yeah. Uh, Right. So we talked about herbs and spices last time, and there's one last note on spicy food. But because we like to spice things up, (laughs) mix things up anyway, we'll flip back to talking about more desserts. And here's here's one you have on um, an Italian dessert that we, hmm, I remember seeing a lot of this around a while ago, and I don't see it on menus so much, but it's tiramisu. Right, and in the 80s, I think it was a big hit. You found it on every menu and, and often pronounced uh, tiramisu, uh, tiramisu in Italian. And it's actually a phrase in Italian that was smushed into a single word, literally draw me to you but you know pick me up or feed your face or something like that it it means it's an attractive dessert that makes you want to eat it Mm -hmm. okay so the japanese love tiramisu although they sometimes make it with green tea rather than coffee um i actually read in the late 80s about uh, cups of tiramisu you could get out of a vending machine in japan where they like to sell everything in vending machines I lived in Japan for uh, two years right at that time, and they had tiramisu everything. But, yeah, the correct spelling is T-I-R-A-M-I-S-U, not T-I-R-I-M-I-S-U. That's an Italian one, but we're going to get back to a French one, and you're going to have to take the lead on this. Okay, vichyssoise. Vichyssoise, yeah. Okay, waiters in restaurants offering this potato leek cream soup often mispronounce it as vichyssoise in a mistaken attempt to sound authentically French. Setting aside the fact that this soup was invented in New York, not France, French final consonants are not silent when they are followed by an E. The correct pronunciation is vichyssoise. And vichyssoise decidedly does end with an E. Yeah. And this is one that you're going to have to, or I'm going to have to look up if I'm spelling it out, V-I-C-H-Y-S-S-O-I-S. S-E. I don't know if they eat this stuff in Vichy or not, but uh, potato leek soup is uh, commonly eaten in France, but uh, this, this particular variation isn't French that's usually served in, in restaurants. Okay, and so I talked about wheat a little while ago, and um, 
something I haven't heard this too much lately, but it it used to be when bread or rolls were being offered at a meal, the waiter would ask wheat or white. And uh, the white bread is also made out of wheat. They're both usually wheat rolls. Uh, the correct term is whole wheat, in which the whole grain, including the bran and the germ, has been used to make the flour. Whole wheat does not necessarily imply that no white flour has been used in the bread. Most whole wheat breads incorporate some white flour. So the whole distinction between wheat or white is it's an abbreviation, handy, I'm hoping it's died out. I haven't heard that for a long time. Well, I, I hope so, too. But I, it's such a convenient shorthand. Mm, I think I have heard it recently. I guess it's I'm just not ordering the, the rolls and bread anymore. Right. Yeah. But if somebody says white or wheat, just realize you're not avoiding wheat flour if you order white. It's all wheat flour. Of course, when you go to the store and you buy the packages of it, it's the white flour is called all-purpose flour. Right. And... um. For those of us who prefer heavier or more whole grain flour, there's whole wheat uh, pastry flour, which is more finely ground than traditional whole wheat flour. And then there's durum flour, which you use for making noodles and spaghetti and stuff like that. And then there's cake flour, which can be hard to find, but is extremely low gluten. And so it doesn't get chewy when you want to make a nice, light, fluffy cake. And all of this makes me question what's really the all-purpose flour <laughs> because uh, all, there are all these other variations that you can use too. Well, I think we're about done with our conversation on menu items or food items that show up in the book, but there is one last one that's worth mentioning. And, and that was spelling of whiskey. And this is a challenge because no matter how you spell it, somebody's going to tell you you're wrong. Uh, some people prefer the spelling W-H-I-S-K-Y without an E. Americans usually follow the Irish spelling. Kentucky Bergen is usually W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. But um, I'm not a whiskey fancier, so I don't know how conscious people who drink the stuff are about this spelling difference. But some people have very strong feelings about it, and you start setting uh, the Irish and the Scotch against each other, and you're, you're bound to have a passionate argument. Mm, yeah, I do think you're spot on, though, that the, in, in American English, you won't go wrong spelling it W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. With that E in there. And uh, dropping the E does look a little more ethnic than uh, we're used to seeing. I think most, most sophisticated places probably go with EY. I want to throw in one more restaurant item, which is my wife's pet peeve. Uh, and that is the waiter coming by the table and say, you done working on that? Oh, working on that. Yeah. Well, aside from done working and rather finished working, um, if the food is any good, you're not working on it, okay? And so she has often told waiters, uh, you know, I'm still enjoying it. <laughs> and uh, I really prefer if a waiter comes by and says, would you like me to take the plate? <laughs> it's none of your, their business, whether you're enjoying it, whether you're working on it, whether you're, you know, that's not the question. What they really want to know is, can I remove that plate for you? And you should say may rather than can mm -hmm. and just ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you done working on that suggests that, uh, yeah, there's, there's chewy steak is what I shouldn't be that way. If you're at a nice place, you're not working on anything. You're getting away from work. 
Okay, so I think I'm done playing with this and working on it. All right, well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tom. Bye. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.